So we are in phenomenal. So welcome to another sticky interview. My name's Nathan Simmons. I'm senior trainer and coach for MBM, Making Business Matter, the training provider, soft skills provider for the UK grocery and manufacturing industry. My idea with these interviews is to be sharing the thoughts and concepts of great people in great spaces doing great work to help you be the best possible version of yourself. And today I'm speaking to a gentleman I got to meet last week by the name of Paddy Willis. Paddy, I'm going to read his bio here. I'm going to tell you why and why some of this is so engaging for me though. Paddy is the founder and CEO of, of Mission Ventures and has a passion for building better challenger brands. He was co-founder of disruptive baby food brand Plum, which was sold in year five to Darwin PE in 2010 on retail sales of 15 million pounds, which by us on its own, Paddy, is pretty phenomenal. Since then, he has been mentoring and supporting startups across the industry with the first UK food accelerator launch in January 2015. Recently, Mission Ventures announced their partnership in the Good Food Fund, a 1.8 million fund established by Big Society Capital with Guy's and St. Thomas's charity to tackle childhood obesity with market-led solutions. And this is where it got interesting for me when I, why I wanted to and when I reached out to Paddy. So there's three elements to this. One is challenger brands. I thought that's really interesting, disrupting markets. Two, childhood obesity. This is a huge thing that's going on with the way that the industry is moving. And then I got thinking, th those two facets on their own are difficult enough. What do effective presentation skills, what is, you know, great, what is a great presenter in that space where you're talking to companies about challenger brands that may put them out of business potentially or, or disrupt their market and also getting people to make moves on the amount of sugars and salts and fats, et cetera, they're putting into their foods. And what sort of skills have you got to have in order to, to present to that level to get people to make those shifts? And I thought, this is a person I need to get to know. This is a person I need to ask some questions to. And this is a person that needs to be in this interview. Paddy, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for the invitation, Nathan. Delighted to join you. Thank you. So look, one of the first things is, and we talked a little bit about this before, um, kind of that necessity to create a brand. Why do you do what you do? Right. Well, originally it was plum baby foods, but now you're, you're helping other markets do that disruptive thing that you do. Why do you do what you do? Well, they always say that you, sh you know, if you do what you love, you'll you'll never have a job uh, in your life. You'll you'll. I think I know. I think I've probably got that wrong. But you know what I mean. The, the broad principle is that if you if you if you do what you love, then um, your every every day is is a great opportunity and, and great fun. And I I I do what I do, and and. And that's in terms of working with founders and entrepreneurs uh, of, in this case, food and drink businesses. But I have worked with uh, a whole broad range of different sectors over the years um, because I'm drawn like a moth, if you like, to the passion and the commitment and the vision uh, of these individuals who often don't, and particularly this is very true in the food sector, I would, and this is a completely unscientific observation, but it's based on having worked with food and drink startups over the last five, five plus years on, on our business accelerators, is that I would say 85, if not possibly 90% of founders do not come from within the industry. Uh, and the reason I think that is, is because if they did come from the industry, they probably wouldn't start because they would realize just what a challenge it is um, to succeed in this market. 
Um, it, it's also been helped by the fact a lot of you know barriers to, to entry have come down. It's become much easier, uh, and resources to things like shared kitchens and, and consultants and everything else have become much easier um, than when we set up Plum uh, back in uh, two, well, launched in two thousand six. Um, so it's a, it's about the, it's the passion for the people uh, and, and the purpose that they have behind what they do. I and mean, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that in some of the context of challenger brands. But um, and then the other thing, and this will come back to, uh, it's sort of relevant to the concept of, of what makes for a good presentation because um, really it's about storytelling. And, and a good brand is about telling a good story. And I always remember there's a guy called Daniel Priestley, an Australian entrepreneur who I, I, I try and think when it was I heard him speak. It was at a small event for, uh, for founders, I don't know, let's call it 10 years ago. Um, and he talked about the fact that he, is a very keen mountain walker. Uh, and he said, the thing when you go mountain walking is that, you know, you, set, you know where you're going and you set off up, up this hill, which the hill becomes a mountain and you get to the top and you, you eventually get there and you, you take in the view around you. Uh, but inevitably you're, your eye is drawn to the ridge that's gonna take you to the next peak and that's gonna take you on to the next part of your journey. Um, and he says, but if you were to look down where you've just come from, um, you would see that there inevitably can be people following in your in your footsteps following the paths that you've trodden um, and he says that it doesn't really matter what you do and this isn't exclusive to an entrepreneur it could be anybody in a, in a, in a career is uh, and in life in general is that you're, you you will at all, all different stages in your life you'll be standing on a mountain of value and that's everything that's helped you get to that point in, in your life uh, and he says the simple thing to do and the, and the pleasurable thing to do is to say look behind you and say actually do you know what I wouldn't go left there I'd go right because I, I tried left and it was a bit tricky but I went right and I, you know I'm here so it doesn't really matter whether you're five minutes ahead of somebody or five hours ahead of them or five years ahead of them or 50 years ahead of them um, there is always this concept of um, uh, being able to share with people what you've learned on that pathway and that's what I love doing so I do a lot of mentoring a lot of activity around particularly around uh, helping um, young students to understand the world of entrepreneurship help open their eyes to uh, possibilities uh, as and when they eventually get into the workplace so it, it really comes down to uh, a, a working with people with passion uh, and uh, wanting to try and um, share that journey share, share what I've learned from standing on whatever mountaintop I might be on or even the mountain I might be halfway up um, wherever you are, it's just helping to play that map. And it's exactly that. And that's why I do what I do. You know, with 23 years in leadership positions, I have made a lot of mistakes. I've made uh, a lot of errors. I've failed countless times. I've been knocked back from interviews. I've been frustrated at myself. And it's not about denying, and I've learned the difference between pain and suffering. It's not about denying people the pain because you need the pain to make the movement but it's helping people to make the movement faster so they don't wallow in it and then it becomes suffering, they don't do anything and then it takes them longer to extract that goodness out of where they're going. Um, and if you can pass that back one year, two years, five years, 20 years to someone else that when they're at the turning point in their journey at 23 rather than 43, mm -hmm. and I say that leadership and parenting are not two sides of the same coin, they're exactly the same thing. And you want the people in your care to supersede you. you. No parent in their right mind wants their child to be equal to or less than them. They want them to supersede. So when you go and mentor and business coach or do all those things, you want that person to supersede you so they can go and do something incredible. And that comes from people like you 
by sharing some of that wisdom to help them go left instead of right at the right at the right time you know phenomenally powerful and, and it, it's all you know I'm, I'm a great believer in karma and, and the, you know the, what goes around comes around and you know all these other phrases that basically mean that you know you treat others as you, as you would wish to be treated so uh, every day I'm learning something new I, I wish I'd been braver to ask for help and mentorship um, in, in when I was younger um, but there was a sort of a sense that, that I had in my head if no one else's it was just in my head that I had to sort of figure it out for myself um, and the reality is is that there are so many things that I've done, and you're by the way, absolutely right. You you know you, you learn far more from the failures than you do from the successes. And successes, you think, oh, that was good, and you carry on and you, you do a bit more. But actually, when it doesn't work out, that's when you sort of think, well, why didn't it work out? Um, and and you're forced to rethink about it and 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 readdress it. So yeah, so I think you know for anyone in 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 um, in leadership positions or aspiring to a leadership position, you know, it's it's having the humility to know when you don't have all the answers um and and i'm, I'm a great believer in in authenticity uh in terms of you know whether it's a brand or whether it's your your personality um people can smell bullshit you know 100 miles away um and uh and to a degree that's sort of in a challenger brand context i sort of think that's what's happening now to a degree with the shift away from some of the big colossal brands that have been around for decades um people don't quite believe in them the way maybe they used to uh and they're more in their inquiring mind is leading them more towards brands that speak in a different language that put forward values that these people that the consumer can uh, relate to um and, that, and that's another you know that's another reason i love what i do because i get to work with people who are expressing those values um, every day in, in the products and the brands and businesses that they're building. And that's an interesting tangent, and we might not be able to go down that today. One of the research pieces I did um, about a year ago came up with only 27% of all employees actually believe in their company values, wow. which is huge. <laughs> so then, and then when you look at the engagement levels of the globally employed, it was something like 80%, 87% of the employed are not engaged in the work that they're doing. So those two equations, kind of the statistics sit quite nicely together. When you then transfer that over to the, the client and the customer demographic, okay, what does this person actually want? Now, because there's a wider choice, I can go and choose a product from a person that I think has my values or looks like me or holds my best interests at heart. Um, and you know, having this one size fits all potentially from a large organization it may not be the best approach these days. And I, and I say that more now from a coaching aspect. As coaches and mentors, we know there are a million different coaches out there, but it's all about finding your demographic, finding your niche. And potentially from what I'm hearing from you is that sort of thinking is also bleeding into the food industry and, and challenger brands as well. Hugely yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, the, the, if you look up you know, what is a challenger brand, essentially, it also it starts from a mindset. You know, it starts from a position of saying, "Really, is this as good as it gets?" Uh, and if I look back to the, the the genesis of the idea for for Plum Baby, which was um, my wife Susie's idea at the time, it was you know we'd had a gap of eight years uh, between child two and child three, and going back, although um, we were never big consumers of, of baby. Um, but it was always a convenience thing you know it'd be good to have something that you could chuck in a baby bag and take away for the weekend etc and and it was the fact that nothing really had changed nothing had moved on um and so that was inspiration 
for Susie in this case to go out and say, look, you know, we're sure we can do something better than this. And that's what led to the genesis of, of Pond Baby and, 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 you know, and we helped change the category uh, as a result. Um, but it was, it was born out of that frustration that big food and, you know, we're talking about brands like Heinz and, and, and Danone, Cowgate, um, Organics, which was the sort of uh, Lizzie Brand had, had formed Organics some years prior and had built it very successfully. Um, and was really probably the only challenger brand at the time in that space. Um, and, and yet again, that sort of had elements that were a bit tired and, and not, not driving real innovation. And that's what, what led us down the path to do what we did, which was to, to, to launch a, a premium but ambient uh, baby food. And it was actually, you know, when we sold in 2010, we were still quite considerably bigger than um, um, Ella's Kitchen. Um, and in the, in the years that, that followed, um, guess what? Paul Inley led Ella's Kitchen to be the biggest baby food brand in the UK, overtaking, you know, Cowngate and, and, and Heinz in, in the process. I don't think we ever believed we could do that. Uh, we'd always set out, by the way, to have a five-year plan to an exit, which is exactly what we achieved. But the, 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 the point being that we broke down the barriers of how things were done in that sector. Um, now, of course, what's happened is that the Ellis Kitchen has gone from being the challenger brand to being the leading brand. And once, once that happens, you're no longer the challenger brand, you're the incumbent. So, you know, you know it'd be interesting to see over the years what, what happens to those uh, a myriad of smaller brands that are out there now trying to challenge the marketplace. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, that, that's what's, the, uh, and, you know, those are two good examples of parents setting up brands that tackled um, something that they, they saw missing in the market. And that's what we see an awful lot of, particularly with brands that are um, seeking to do something around childhood obesity. Often in the case, it's been set up by, uh, by founders who are parents and, and have been shocked or dis- you know, just disappointed by um, sugar-laden, you know, um, additive, um, heavy, products that, that their, their kids are being forced to or encouraged to consume so that's you know so that i think um yeah it, it, it starts with a mindset and it, and it is that element of do you know what i don't think um we've you know th- this this doesn't have to be the only way uh, and that's you know we're talking about food and drink but obviously that's happened in in, in other markets as as well i mean tesla is quite an interesting example of how somebody's managed to build an incredibly successful company challenging the automobile industry, um, which, you know, so it's the challenge brands are, are everywhere. Um, and, I, and I think what's encouraging is that the younger generations now, by which I speak as someone who can call millennials, the younger generation, uh, the Gen Zs and, and, and millennials are, um, are making more purpose-led decisions, um, value-led decisions, and, and that's leading them to choose brands that are, um, shaking things up and, and that's what you know but fervently I believe that this is part of what we want to achieve as Mission Ventures is to help transformation through by helping to build better challenger brands that can lead a process of change very much as has happened in the baby food market where now suddenly um, the status quo has been shifted towards a, a brand that is doing better food and, and filling little tummies with with um, more nutritious uh, food than was acceptable before. So many good things in that. One is you, know, you talked about having that five-year plan and working to that, and I think that's one of the uh, one of the key effective presentation skills that are there. 
is when you go into a presentation, you begin with the end in mind. When you go into a business, you begin with the end in mind. When you go into kind of disrupting a market in a certain space, you got, you know, you begin with the end in mind. Stephen R. Covey, Seven Habits of yeah, it's, it's a life lesson. And you also touched on what is a challenger brand. And it's about disruption. And it's about that necessity is the father of invention. You know, like you say, you had the gap between child one and two. Actually, can we do something different here? Can we bring something that we know solves a problem to us? And because it solves a problem to us, actually, it probably solves a problem to another two million people out there in some way, shape or form. And the other interesting kind of analogy that pops in my head is you're looking at Ella's Kitchen. Now they, they were the disruptor. Now they've become the incumbent. Now they're number one. It's almost like Bannister's four-minute mile. You know, it, he breaks the four-minute mile by whatever it was, half a second, two seconds or whatever. And then that record was broken something ridiculous like 27 times in the next 12 months because he proved it, was, could, be, it could be done. Ella's Kitchen goes out and does that. Plum baby food comes in, another one comes in, another one comes in because me, because like you say, you're at the top of the mountain or you're halfway up the mountain and people go, bloody hell, look at Paddy, where is he, where's he off to? Maybe mm. I can do that in my space for something that's important to me. I'm going to start climbing that mountain as well. Um, so when you talk about what is a challenger brand, it's about disruption and doing something from necessity. Where does it come from? Might you say it's purposeful? It's from the heart in the majority of times. Yeah. Um, mm. What role do you think challenger brands play in helping to shape the food industry moving forward more so then? Well, it, it, is, it is this point about saying, you know, if you're going to disrupt a category, um, and, you know, come back to the sample with Plum and, and others, is that you, you go about uh, doing that because you believe in, um, in not setting, it's not settling for second best. Uh, you, you, you forge away. Um, and in doing that, you then there's that sort of drag effect where people come into that sort of um, slipstream, if you like, uh, and suddenly the new normal is to be healthier. Or you know, all of our recipes um, when we launched um, were you know, at that point you could still call them superfood, but they were all superfood ingredients. Um, and uh, we introduced this whole kind of concept of, of baby food going away from being. Um, rather sort of bland, colourless um, fillers to something which actually carried purposeful ingredients. Uh, and now that's very much the case, you know, pretty much not all across the industry, but but, but uh, much more prevalently. And as I say, that's what's led to uh, others being able to come up alongside and, and uh, overtake us and, be and become uh, the, the dominant uh, party. Um, I mean, you know, another good example in that is, um, is fever tree. You know, who would ever have believed, I, I remember as a, as a kid going in and sort of, sipping uh, from bottles of uh, Schweppes tonic water in my parents' drinks cabinet and feeling terribly sophisticated in the process and also a bit naughty. Um, and, and who would ever have believed that that sort of um, gold yellow label of Schweppes was ever going to be toppled as, as the market leader? And then, lo and behold, within 15 years of launch, um, Fubitry has done that. Uh, now, I know they've had a few challenges more recently, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that they were able to take on um, a market leader and I, I think a lot of their you know very very clever advertising and marketing was this whole point about you know if, if three quarters or whatever it was if your if your drink actually is the mixer um then then surely that's as important a part of the drink as as the tonic as, as the gin or the, the spirit so so the, so in terms of what does um what can the challenger brand do to change the market 
uh, it can do exactly that. It can lead um, and it can demonstrate that there are better ways to do things or different ways to do things and that those different ways to do things are actually meeting a consumer need. I think that got me thinking, and this is why I'm enjoying this conversation, me learning about challenger brands, me learning about kind of it's almost like these homebrew beer companies, craft beers, and so many of them coming about. Um, and actually this level of quality that's, that's pushing up now, because actually we want something. We don't want complacency. We don't want generic. We want different. We want inspiring. We want purposeful products with values. Um, and then it got me thinking about Simon Sinek's book, and I'm still yet to read this, The Infinite Game. And one of his kind of concepts in there was having a worthy adversary. It's not about having competition. Is you want someone that's going to push your buttons and sometimes really annoy you and agitate you, but they push you to be better than you were before because you know if you stop paying attention, they're going to accelerate away from you. It's not that they're going to crush you. It's they're going to they're going to take the market lead. Well, actually, how do we bounce ideas off of each other from the other side of the court? How do we use them as the encouragement to help us make our own products obsolete before someone else does? Uh, and really pushing this thinking in. So actually we need challenger brands to be stepping up so that actually we step up and, and cut out the complacency. Super important. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, really good, a really good point. And I would say, you know, you can look at that in, in sort of management situations as well, is that, that if, if you don't have people who are sort of thrusting um, uh, challenger personnel, if you like, that, that are getting you, you've got to keep thinking. You've got to keep thinking, what am I doing to deliver value? What am I doing to... Um, to, to demonstrate that, that I've got um, ideas and, and capabilities that, that could be um, put to broader, greater use within this organisation that I belong to. Um, and I think, you know, this is, this is so important. You know, I often, and I can remember this with, um, I've been in situations in the past when you've been in a business and suddenly someone's announced that they're doing a product or a service which is very similar to yours. And, oh, God damn it, we're too late. Maybe we've missed the boat for this. No, actually, you, you, because if you're out there on your own, you, you're, you're an outlier and it's really hard to build a lot of scale behind that because um, you're, you know, particularly the challenge the way things have been done traditionally, as soon as it becomes a little bit more mainstream and people start to get into that same flow, then that's when people will start to go from beyond just the early adopters into, um, uh, into the, uh, the next sort of categories of Consumer, so you do need people to to come on that journey. You know, clearly, you hope, obviously, that you're going to keep a nose ahead and and, uh, and be the dominant part uh, partner in that race, if you like, to towards uh, perhaps toppling the incumbent and becoming the, the, the new market leader. Um, but doing it doing it on your own and in isolation is is a real challenge. So um, as hard as it can be, sometimes to see people coming into the same market segment. As you, you know, you have to recognise the fact that that's doing two things. One, it's validating your concept and your idea, um, but it's also it's also making it easier for consumers uh, and, and clients to understand that what you're doing is not so odd, uh, because actually there's various people doing sort of different flavours, different different degrees of that, and then that's giving them a choice to choose from that rather than thinking, well, do I go mainstream or do I go the slightly oddball out, outlier, and you know the not. <laughs> Not for no reason do we have that old adage of, you know, no one ever got fired for choosing IBM. Um, so if you've got uh, a situation where you can see um, a selection of options that look different to maybe in the way the market looked a year, two, ten years ago, uh, then making a choice on that is, is, is less challenging, maybe less threatening to, to, to 
you as an individual or to you as a business leader. So I think that's really important that, uh, that people need that uh, counterbalance. And I think that's also a test of your own um, focus and optimism and belief in what it is you're doing. Because if you're presenting with confidence that product, or you're, you're, or you're feeling that kind of knock of someone else is in this space, that you can stand up and present with confidence what it is you believe in, why you're doing it, the purpose of this, where this is coming from. Again, as you say, people will buy that authenticity. Um, yeah. they, 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 they're buying into your values. They're buying into why you're doing it, not necessarily just because someone else thinks they can undercut you and deliver a cheaper product at a better price. There will still be a marketplace for you as long as you're storytelling and presenting that element in a way that is, is bringing those people on board and encouraging them to buy. Super important. Mm. Thinking though, what's now in the big project? So we talked, a li- I, I alluded a little bit to the, the guys and St. Thomas's element. What's the current big project? So this is really exciting and, and I get slightly daunted uh, in that excitement because we are trying to tackle something that is so huge um, and yet so important. Um, so that the you know we've all been aware uh, of the incessant rise of um, obesity as a nation, and, and most worryingly how it's starting very early on. Um, and childhood obesity now is is a big topic. So so guys and St Thomas's charity um, has um, set themselves a ten year um, program uh, where they are uh, investing in and exploring um, different ideas to um, see what can be done to challenge um, the, the, the status quo, uh, if you like. Um, and, and one of the, uh, and they, they read a report with um, Big Society Capital, um, who are the other co-funder behind um, the, the Good Food Fund, which we are uh, working with. Um, and they published a report called Healthy Returns, which was really trying to which was setting out to uh, explore this concept of could you derive market-led solutions by backing and supporting healthier challenger brands um and the the so so that's the that, that's the context excuse me if you like so, they, so this is one of many projects that they are funding um and because they are a place-based charity guys and tommy's charity they are focusing particularly on uh, Southwark and Lambeth. Now, Southwark and Lambeth happens to have some of the uh, worst um, rates of childhood obesity in London. Um, and uh, there is a particular obesity corridor that runs uh, across both, um, both those boroughs. Um, and so what we are doing is um, working with, Ascension Ventures have been nominated as the fund manager for what is a 1.8 million fund, um, the Good Food Fund. Uh, which will provide uh, equity and debt solutions to um, a range of businesses that can help to try and tackle this challenge. We are running a a business accelerator, which is likely to extend to about 10 10 or a dozen uh, businesses, particularly with a focus on um, healthy snacking, but but not exclusively, but looking at healthy snacking um, and are there ways where with younger children, so primary school age children, that we can encourage families and the children to adopt um, healthier habits if you like uh, by providing more options for them um, and, and this is really the um, a, a pilot program where if we can work with the challenger brands um, and with retailers uh, and other routes to market over the next sort of 12-18 months the ambition 
for the funders is to create a, a much larger fund uh, that will not only be supported by themselves but by others um, within the investment community uh, and in doing that um, bring with them the, the retail industry uh, the wholesale distribution in, industry um, and really uh, again come, come back to this point really of saying that you know is this as good as it gets are there not things that we can be doing to improve the environment um, in which families particularly those from low-income families because low-income families I'll give you a classic example um, within the, the sort of virus we're talking about. So 10% um, of um, children leaving primary school in Dulwich Village are obese. But that rises threefold to 33% in Camberwell Green. So there you've got two, you know, two wards um, where there's this huge disparity. And it comes down to the fact that the options available for low-income families are, are poor quality. Um, and this is the issue that we're trying to face. So can we work with the challenge brands to help them take what are classically more expensive products to make because they're using usually more premium ingredients um, and by definition they're using smaller, smaller runs uh, in volume and therefore their costs are higher. Um, they need the margin in order to attract the investors uh, and to stay in business. So they have to inevitably end up marketing themselves through the more expensive retail channels. Uh, which are sort of really just not even the, uh, um, are just not the hunting ground of, of, of low-income families. So um, this is what we're looking at: is how do we how do we help steer the brands and the industry into ways of thinking about how we can disrupt um, the way things have been done traditionally? So it's a very very exciting, I mean, huge huge challenge, um, and it won't just be down to to us and, and a dozen or so brands. But this is a, a, a test bed, if you like, for looking at how we can uh, work with the brands, uh, with, with, with the distribution channels to see what can be done to um, uh, provide scalable uh, brands that can uh, address the challenge and at the same time um, generate healthy returns for those that are investing in them. And potentially, from, so it was sparking some old ideas that I have about food, etc., um, I obviously have a relationship with sugar. Um, I, I alluded to that in some of our previous conversations and how that affected my health at a very young age. I ended up being diagnosed with Crohn's disease and having um, imbalances in my gut floor, which ended up having huge sections of my intestine removed, abscesses and all sorts. Um, mm. And I was lucky enough to cure that because we were very focused on our diet. Not everyone has access to that information. On the flip side of it, though, is actually when I, when I think about that question of what what place do the challenger brands have in the market well actually things like sugar sugar beet sugar cane the whole huge swathes of, of of power over the content of food and over the way that people buy actually one of the things i was looking at i used to grow a vegetable called a yakon which actually when boiled down produces inulin so your body doesn't actually digest it and that sugar but because no one's farming that at a large level, you can't produce that sugar and in effect uh, uh, um, such a low, in, a low rate um, purchasing price because of the volume of sugar beet that's on the market potentially. So you need some of these challenger brands to be stepping in with these new solutions that are then going to go, actually, here's a product that's at the right price in the right place, delivering the right flavor so that people can make a choice when, they, when, the, when they've got that in front of them. Um, and then in doing so, they can do something that's healthier and better for themselves, but also at a price bracket that suits that demographic in that space as well.
super important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And no, uh, you're right. And and uh, we we work with a brand um, called True Foods, who um, you mentioned Inulin. Um, they've adopted Inulin, um, so they've gone from being just a sort of granola brand initially to being a whole range of um, granolas and porridges, um, but also doing uh, what they call a jar full of um, uh, of fiber, which is liquid Inulin, um, and coming from chicory root, and and. It's, it's got fantastic qualities for, um, for uh, helping to close the fiber gap, which um, a far too high percentage of um, our population uh, experience. Um, we, you know, we, we struggle to get our fiber day, but we're also definitely not getting our fiber. Um, and you, know, you referred to um, gut flora and gut health. Um, you know, this really is the, uh, um, the, the big movement that we see is, is um, brands that are um, extolling gut health uh, and um, some very exciting you know, evolutions in that space, a long way still to go. But um, if, you know, people always say, trust your gut, you know, it's the second, second brain and everything. Uh, and yet we don't, tr we don't treat the gut very well. Um, uh, and, you know, you, you just alluded to some you know, decisions that you, that, that you were making as a child that led you to have all sorts of um, drastic medical issues later. Um, and yeah, and, and this is why, you know, this is why it's so important for us to, um, you know, education will go so far um, with consumers, but uh, you, 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 there is a role for um, for brands to play in in challenging the way things have been done in the past. Um, it's hard if you're a small producer with relatively expensive ingredients uh, and a need to, you know, obviously like every business, to make a margin that's that's sustainable. So we're we're going to be looking at what are the things that can be done around that to um, to help you uh, to uh, scale your business uh, effectively, uh, and in doing that, to then become a more affordable, um, healthier range that becomes, if you like, a, an omni brand in terms of it's, it's it's available to everybody rather than just a select few. Exactly that, and I remember the turn of the kind of the buying process were going from normal food products when organic started to become a thing. And then it, it was actually, or being organic was a lifestyle choice. It wasn't actually an option, you know, because organic food was so expensive at the time. And I think it's getting better now. But like I say, it's having those options are available where actually the contents and the ingredients are of, not of necessarily a premium quality, of a good quality, where it is affordable, it is accessible, it's healthy, environmentally sound, and it's also good for us internally at a gut level. Um, and I think some of that's going to happen at a, a personal level, company level, but also at kind of the food produce level as well. So what, how are those organisations being run and, and what are they saying is okay to go down that food chain, which actually is causing a lot of the problems and, and how that's manipulating the thinking. Because, actually, and this is an interesting tangent, is I was screaming out for sugar all of the time. I always wanted sugar whenever I know, but it wasn't actually... My, me screaming out for sugar it was the ye internal yeast infection it was the bacteria um triggering responses in my brain to scream out for more sugar to feed the the imbalance which then mm -hmm. caused the hospitalization um and not everyone gets to understand that you know you just go to the sweet shop and you buy whatever's there because you you feel you have a necessity to do that um yep. And you almost feel as if that choice is taken away from you because you just don't know any better, unfortunately, because that's the environment you're in. Um, no, definitely. And, and I think, you know, a, a, 
as I said, the big focus for the charity is to explore how we can help um, those lower income families to, uh, you know, through improved options. Um, and, and that's, that's um, you know, everybody wants affordable, um, tasty, nutritious, healthier food. Um, but in a lot of cases, the cheaper options um, are, are not, you know, there, there's a, you're either, you're either cheap or you're, or you're, Tasty, nutritious, and healthy. Um, I mean, there's a massive, you know, massive um, oversimplification, but that, that's a, um, that's classically what you see. And so, shelf space, shelf space is given by retailers to those brands where um, they can shift in volume, uh, and it's really hard for a, a healthier brand to necessarily get those those um, those hurdle rates in place. So, I think um, where there are um, fewer options available for, for affordable and healthy and tasty um, food. And also the other, the other element, of course, is, is around what are the options for playful exercise that will engage children. Um, I mean, sadly, you know, we're talking at the time of the pandemic and the lockdown, um, where it becomes really hard for families to, um, you know, you imagine you're in the tower, tower block somewhere in, in Lambeth or Southwark, your options are limited. I mean, you know, I'm here in Surrey and I've got a, a garden I can walk around and, and, and a village to explore um, and, and take the dog for a walk. So, you know, th th there are these polarities, unfortunately, in society. And to a degree, this is being um, uh, really the spotlight of the pandemic. Is, well, the, spot, the pandemic is shining a spotlight on this issue. Um, and I was, I was reading just the other day that I think it was Just Eat had released some data which said that um, families attending to order their takeout food um, for delivery earlier, sometimes up to two hours earlier than they would do normally, um, and they're adding on more um, more desserts and sort of um, ancillary purchases with their meal because people spent the whole day in lockdown and. Um, you know, if, if you're a frazzled parent, it's much easier to sell, okay, and you, you'll get the, the sticky pudding or the dessert, whatever, that the kid is asking you for, so there comes another sugar, sugar hit just before bedtime. Um, so it, it is really hard. And, and what, certainly the work that came out of the Healthy Returns report demonstrated that, of course, a large part of these inner city, low-income families are, are populated by single, single parents, usually mums, at home, with a couple of young kids. Um, and uh, the challenges are, are legion. You know, there's the worry about getting the bills paid. There's the worry about um, the children's health. There's a worry about their schooling. There's a worry about who they might be hanging out with. Um, all these things are crowding in on you. And also, if you haven't necessarily come from a household where there's been a culture of of, um, of cooking and, and 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 such like that, you know, you your 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 field of vision, if you like, the options within your field of vision are very narrow. Um, and uh, with the pressures of your existence comes a, a, even a, a, a even greater narrowing of focus. Um, and you just, it's, it's that sort of fight or flight mode where you are literally looking at survival. Uh, how do we get through the day? How do we get through the next bill, the bill run, the next payday, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you, you will naturally gravitate towards simpler solutions. And sometimes that's the takeout. Sometimes it's a snack to help keep the kids quiet and off your back whilst you try and get the laundry done or, or whatever the things are, you know, and, it, and it's really, really tough. And, and you know, the, the food industry has an opportunity now to step up and, and give shelf space to healthier brands. Um, 
give opportunities for um, brands with purpose and with real values to drive and initiate change because we know that can happen. Um, but you know, unfortunately, we've just also gone through several weeks of, of panic buying where um, shelves have been cleared to make more space for the big brands. Um, and you know, I understand there are reasons why that happens, but um, there has to be a balance here and, and people will want choice. They'll want um, better options available to them. And, and in doing that, you need to give airtime, air, you know, space on shelf to the healthier challenger brands that can not only um, resonate with how you feel about the world in general, but also to um, provide tastier options and tastier um, uh, solutions than just the mainstream. The other thing you picked up on there was we've had to pivot our business quite rapidly in this, this very changing last few weeks that we've been in, in lockdown and we've been doing some live trainings one o'clock 20 minutes 20 to 30 minutes and one of those was around isolation and actually people have been getting tired early on so they've been with the initial part of this they were getting tired around eight o'clock and feeling and feeling lethargic um, they're not able to focus on their projects. They don't want to start new projects. You've got these levels of worry and stress that are sitting in the background. But you find a lot of these things that people are doing are actually stress reactions. They're actually symptoms of cabin fever. So you compound a couple of these elements of, okay, I'm in a tower block in wherever in this small space. You know, I've got children. Okay, potentially you've got some other stuff here that uh, around um, price, value, quality, all those elements. And then you bring all that into one bundle you then put that into the melting pot of COVID-19 and all of a sudden those choices start to compound very rapidly. And like you say, the dessert quantity or ancillary purchases goes up um, to, to backfill um, kind of the, the abnormal environment you're in, uh, uh, the alien environment, and kind of compensate that to try and make yourself feel better with a sugar hit that brings the emotions up and, and uh, the dopamine levels up just mm -hmm. to deal with the negative situation that people are in. And they're trying to balance that out. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, and it's, it is interesting, there was some, some data I saw recently about um, how you know, big brands, you know, Walkers and others are, are seeing uh, a bit of a boom at the moment because um, people are gravitating back to those sort of comfort brands that they've known you know, throughout their lives. Um, and and bigger, bigger purchasing volumes are being, are being, are being, being driven, you know, the bigger sharing banks, everything is going, going through. And, um, and if you've only got, if you've got more limited time to exercise and to, uh, to work that off, um, you know, that, that is a, a real challenge at the moment. And of course, obesity has been in the spotlight more recently because there's been evidence suggesting that a very high percentage of those that do end up um, dying from COVID-19 across age groups have, have had issues with obesity uh, and the underlying issues that, that, that go with that, whether diabetes or heart conditions, et cetera. Um, so there is this sort of interesting dilemma where people are wanting to sort of comfort eat, if you like, get, to get through um, this period of isolation and shutdown and have normality. Um, but there's also at the same time, it had been a huge increase in Google searches for healthy, um, healthy eating, healthier snacks, healthier food, et cetera. So, it, you know, there's a sort of um, balancing act going on between people who are saying, oh, sorry, let's have, you know, a family bag or whatever. Uh, and uh, and others who are thinking, well, actually, I need to look at my health now, my nutrition, and work out how can I how can I avoid some of the these kind of pandemics in, in the future. And let's say, let's face it, well, there will be another one at some point, uh, maybe not in our lifetimes. But um, and and that's the the real issue is is that there there has to be some work 
because already we know that obesity has been driving a lot of the um, uh, NHS budget. You know, it's drawn down an awful lot of uh, um, of that uh, for its underlying health reason, uh, underlying health um, impact. And now, of course, we've got this suggestion that that it's um, made people more vulnerable to COVID. Uh, and therefore, there has to be an initiative by government to say, look, well, we can't, you know, we've all been really good at getting out there and challenge and supporting the NHS and um, wonderful things like um, that uh, army, army veteran walking 100 times around his garden and the uh, last yeah. time I raised over 13 million. I'm blessing. Um, and extraordinary, extraordinary things going on. Um, and we can't be doing all that just in order to then just drift back into some level of complacency. So there will have to be some level of government um, initiative around uh, healthy reasoning. Um, but there also needs to be some responsibility for consumers to be willing to look at the other options available to them and to um, consider swap outs between, you know, if, if for example, the work we're going to be doing uh, in the virus, if we can put product on shelf, which is it will take the same price as the, you know, the market leader, uh, and there is a healthier option, but without shouting the health story to people, because that's a, that's a turn off. If we can get them to make swaps that are um, tasty and, and, and nutritious and, and, and affordable, then little by little you can see how you can very, very gradually start to nudge the needle in the right direction. Um, and that's not really asking very much of the consumer because you're, you're simply just giving them options that uh, allow them to um, make their own improvements for, for health um, and, and you know, many other things they need to be doing as well with their lifestyle. But that's just a tiny, tiny thing that we can start to try and work on. Mm. And also, I'm interviewing a gentleman by the name of Oliver Bailey next week, and that interview will be available by the time that people are listening to this. Um, and what he's doing is he's taking the fruit and veg from the markets that's no longer going to restaurants because they're closed, raising charity money to, to then buy those products and then going and giving that to the doctors and nurses so they haven't got to think about what they've got to go shopping for. Because you talk yeah. about that stress environment, they're doing 13, 14, 15 hours. They don't want to think. The first thing they do is go to the cafe or they go to the, the supermarket. They're hungry, which is the worst state to be in when you go shopping. For sure, you buy 10 times more things that you don't need and, aren't, and you make those healthy choices. And repurposing that, uh, that, that produce and giving it to these guys that are working in high-pressure environments as well. Um, mm. So, again, just having the ability to be able to pivot as a consumer for all the right reasons and, and be able to see those possibilities and innovate with your own health and well-being but it's, it's having that education that internal dialogue to be able to do it and, and having those supporting challenger brands now you talked about kind of that that gentle nudging and that leads into that the, the, the kind of the third part really of this conversation for me which is around presentation skills what are the qualities of a good presenter because you've got to get a message across and being a good yep. presenter, you've got to do to companies, to consumers, to regulators, full works. So what are the uh, qualities of a good presenter? Well, I, I think the, the first thing that, that is, is very obvious, but worth stating is it's got to be, you know, the presenter has got to be engaging. Um, if you can't engage the audience, then it doesn't really matter what you're going to tell them. Um, they're not going to switch on. They're not going to be receptive. Um, so you need to be engaging with that. It helps if you can be confident in the message that you're looking to deliver. Um, it's very, very hard to put across a, a strong message if, if the um, presenter is, is lacking the confidence because then you're thinking, well, actually, do they really believe in what they're saying? 
Um, I think I mentioned the word authentic uh, and authenticity before. I think um, there's a huge uh, need for people to uh, let their natural authenticity come out. I mean, why are you, I mean, you, you put out some very scary stats earlier on about how disengaged people can be with their, their jobs and the work that they do. But um, hopefully if you've been put in a position to present something, um, you, uh, as we do, certainly with the work that we do with, with the brands uh, and, and the partners that we work with, um, and, and we are on the verge of signing our first corporate venturing partnership, uh, the joint venture with one of the UK's biggest food brands, to help them get closer to challenger brands and help them to look at potential deal flow for M&A down the road. And all this is coming down to, you know, do we have the, you know, why would they trust a little old, little old organization like us, um, a fraction of the size of their business um, that's been going for squillions of years to help them in what they know is a, is a real, real challenge. They know they haven't got the in-house skills to bring these brands on and to development. It's uh, to development. They've got all the big, issues of day-to-day -day business to worry about rather than some scurrying little brand that's getting in the way uh, and not yet making a profit for them. So, so, so it has, you have to have confidence um, in that. Um, and also, particularly if you're doing something which is, whether you're talk, talking to one person or whether you're talking to a room or to a, a, an audience, um, you, you've got to be able to um, have empathy. You've got to you know, come back to this point about engagement. Um, I'm a great believer that if you're, if you're making a presentation to bunch of people around the table or into an auditorium you have to make eye contact with everybody you have to bring them with you but make them feel personally that you're talking to them um often it's I, I, it's interesting I, I, I know i've been guilty of this many 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 times i will be again but you'll often find um people it's a little bit like a like a garden sprinkler that's kind of got slightly stuck um and it won't go to water the rest of the garden that people get stuck in a certain quadrant of, of a room and you're thinking, come on, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can bring your, your focus over to the other side of the room. And um, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, so I would say it's, it's, about, uh, it's about being engaging, it's about having confidence in, in what you're um, presenting and discussing, uh, being your authentic self in that, uh, and um, have the, having the empathy, having the, the ability to engage um, with every member of your audience. That's amazing. That's the four really clean points to do that. Um, and I think when you talk about that confidence and that empathy is all and authenticity, tapping into those things. I had a conversation yesterday and, and how many people get overexcited or they put too much importance on what they want to talk about and they, they come diving in and they just blurt out a load of stuff at people and they only give them half the message or they give them the back end of the message and, and miss all the because yes, it's, it's all important to them, but they miss that storytelling. They miss that connection, that engagement to, to bring the audience on the ride, to show people the journey, that, the, that necessity that has created the invention and the authenticity of why you're doing that and, and being able to impart that empathetically so that people go, I want to listen to this person. Mm. They do know what they're talking about. They do give a shit, they care. Um, and I want to be a part of that. I want to support them as a, as a leading brand or manufacturer. I want to in, in invest in these people so they can go to the next part of that business journey. Uh, yeah. I think those four top tips on effective or you know, good presentation <laughs> skills is phenomenal. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, you know, what goes with that, for example, is, is and again, I've been guilty of this and will be again, you know, not reading the slide. Don't just read the slide. If you put words on a slide, someone else has already read them probably by the time you're going to reference to them so embellish them but tell us tell a story that goes with that 
Now, I, I you know, I've referenced more times than I could ever imagine the mountain of value story that I heard from from Daniel Priestley. I can't remember anything else that Daniel said in, in that talk that he gave uh, ten years ago. Um, but I can distinctly remember um, that story. And I think, you know, we, we only have a, a capacity, and as I get older, that capacity reduces day by day, but to retain information that, that, um, that we get. And, and, but it is the story, because we are all essentially storytellers. Um, you know, we tell stories to the world about ourselves. Uh, I am presenting myself in a way that tells you and your audience a story about who Paddy Willis is. Um, and we, we inherently do that. It's what, you know, it's what we do as human beings, as members of a society or of a community. But if you can tell a story, um, and I, I, can, I can sort of envisage situations now where I've been in an audience, and so there's a presenter up on stage, he might be pacing around a bit, and, and he's presented, he or she has presented some facts, and they say, I want to tell you a story. And everyone almost is sort of leaning forward, oh, I'm going to hear a story. Um, because it's a little bit like when you go back to school, school, you know, I didn't always engage that well in the classes, but when, when the teacher said, look, it's Saturday, um, I'm going to read a book. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So check, you know, so you've taken that and you know, it's, but it is this element of telling the story. And, and I think that's what people will carry away. They might carry away one or two facts, which really struck them as being significant, uh, maybe a statistic or something. Um, but probably what will happen when they go back to the office or back to their spouse and they say, oh, how was your day? What was the, what was the presentation like? So, oh, yeah, it's interesting. That's a few good things. Um, it's a really interesting story about X or Y. And that's, I, I think, so important in, in presenting and, and it gives you that little bit of license to step away slightly from what's on the slide to tell a bit of, bring a bit more humanity into it because slides tend to by definition be quite dry um, and they're putting across the key facts but if you can tell a story that is relating to why those facts and the story behind them is relevant to the audience you know why they should join you in a partnership why they should consider your idea for the next project that your company is going to back um, why you should be considered for the promotion or whatever the thing is. That's, um, yeah, so storytelling, absolutely critical. And I think that's one of the prime skills of effective presentation. One is don't just be reading off your slide, you know, what was it? Mm -hmm. Ultimate power leads to ultimate corruption, but ultimate PowerPoint ultimately destroys everything. Um, I think there's the phrase, you know, so, it, and then embellish with the story. That's what makes it really effective. And you brought that to life then just by saying, it's like story time at school. Mm. Everybody bloody loves story time at school. Everybody loved, okay, well, I'm doing my maths, I'm making you know, this stuff out of pipe cleaners and blue tack or whatever. But the moment that the teacher says, right, everyone over to the reading corner, everyone over to the, to the, mm. the whatever space, we're gonna do a story, everyone, like, boom. And it's inbuilt from you from a very early point. And it's stories have been used to pass on learning theory concepts for years and years and years. That's why the Greek dramas were so good. They were teaching you drama so you could observe human relationship on a, on a, under a magnifying lens so you could learn from it. But we forgot to learn from those dramas. And when, what actually happened is we just ended up watching soap operas five times a week and, and getting lost in the drama rather than learning from the drama. Um, mm. So effective presentation Four tips again, engaging, confident, authentic, empathy, include those. The effective presentation skills, really get in there with some story and bring it to life for people. Make yeah. people feel like they want to lean forward. Phenomenal. Last question. Yeah. The point about repetition is really important as well because people get worried about repetition. They think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to turn people off, I'm going to bore people. But 
um, th this is something I remember being told decades ago about um, whenever you're imparting information to somebody in that sort of situation of a presentation, it's, it's, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And, and that sort of process of set out the scene so they know, what, they know what's coming, give them the information of the scene, and then wrap up the scene at the end and tell them what they've just heard. Um, and, you know, a good presenter um, will, will do that pulling off a log. And, 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 and it's, it's a real skill, but it, 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 it has to be done in a way which it comes back to authenticity. It's in that confidence about why I want to tell you this in the first place um, and why it's important for you to listen. Uh, and why what I've just told you is still significant and I hope you know the, you've now taken away points that will now lead to the other really important thing which is of course when you conclude that presentation is to sort of say you know usual thing of you know thank you people for their attention and their time and everything else um, but give give a call to action you know um, is it that you want them to ask you questions uh, is it that you want them to fill in the, um, the survey form that's on, on their chair or, or is it that you want them to sign up for the next event or the, the, the subscription or whatever the thing is that you're uh, or, or sign, sign a big check to fund your next project um, so you know and I think that's the thing often I've you know you've had a really good presentation and, you, and you're thinking and then they say thanks very much and they walk off stage you think what do I do with all <laughs> what do I do all that now um, so I think it's really important that, that um, you know, as I said, whether, whatever the thing is that you don't just leave it hanging, you've got to provide an opportunity for people to, to, to do something. They can choose not to, but give them that choice. Give them the choice to either engage further with you or your team uh, or to say, that was interesting, I'm going to process it. Or, that's interesting, hopefully it's interesting. Um, but, no. But they, they need to be, there needs to be something which comes out of that, which is a, a call to action. And then so my, my next question was that how do you end a presentation? That is how you end a presentation. There is a call to action. There is something you're giving them. You're, they are taking away a tangible action or verb activity that is going to continue their thinking about what you just talked about. So that when they get up out of their seat, whatever, they go outside, they get on the bus, they go, they're still thinking, what did Paddy just say? Oh, Paddy said, oh, when I spoke to the bus driver, that reminded me of this. And you're keeping that flow of thinking because you want that learning to stay in. Um, and it was interesting. Again, it came back to that mountain of value analogy. Where's the top of the mountain? That's where we're going. Tell them where you're going to go. Okay, lay out the roadmap and then take them up the mountain through the journey of the speech. And then when you get to the other end, you can now look back and see the journey that you've been on. So it beautifully ties in with what you said about from Daniel Creasy you know, engaging in those core, three core elements of a decent presentation phenomenal value just in that piece alone let alone all the other stuff about challenger brands and supporting those people and the work with childhood obesity phenomenal penultimate question it's always the same for me <laughs> what what do you do to make behavioral change stick oh gosh that's a biggie that's a biggie well actually i've got a little bit of personal evidence of that recently because uh just before christmas um I was suffering with some back and neck issues uh, and I went to a physio and did the classic thing of saying, yeah, 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 I'll do those exercises, do those exercises, and then didn't really do them. I went back and, and it was evident I hadn't done them. Um, but, uh, and it was just before, just before Christmas, actually, uh, yeah, Christmas and New Year period, I managed to get a, get a, get a slot. And then I thought, if I'm going to do anything about this, uh, I really need to, 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 to make this work. Uh, otherwise, why am I paying all this money? So uh, I did, and and now um, 
every morning without fail since since Christmas New Year period. Uh, I've got up and I've done roughly 15, sometimes extending it to 20 minutes of, of exercises and stretches. Some of it's sort of um, given to me by the, uh, the physio, some of it's more kind of Pilates and yoga related. Um, and I feel great as a result of doing that. And um, I get less issues, less, less stresses and strains and backs and necks and what have you. Um, but I, years and years and years, I should have been doing that. Um, but it, it, it took me getting to a point where I thought, you know, I'm embarrassed if I have to go back to my physio and admit that I haven't done what she asked me to do, because how does that make me look? Um, and so it was kind of, I was shamed into doing something um, that I knew was going to be good for me. Uh, and so, I mean, just as an example, that, that's something which is very relevant to me now. And I, and I now actually enjoy, enjoy doing my exercise. I, I look forward to them. Um, and that, I think, is, the, is, the, is, is how do you change, you know, behavioural change is really hard. You know, not, not for nothing do we have the old expression, you, you know, um, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and lepers won't change their spots and stuff. But there are things that you can do. Um, but, and I think the important thing is, is to make it small incremental step changes. Don't make it a, a huge um, thing that is going to... Um, really be a struggle to get to get around so if it's if it's just doing one exercise for two minutes uh, every morning and building up and then adding something and that's what i've been doing i probably ended, i've probably started off doing 10 minutes and i've extended it and added a few extra bits and i've maybe done that rep repetition a little bit longer and i've added in something else that i might have uh, seen or thought was useful um and but i make a point of not going stupid on it because i'll know that the next day i'll feel guilty if i don't keep up to the same level uh that i did the day before so i don't I, i'm deliberately keeping it at a modest level which i think is you know enough for, for my immediate need uh i'm not putting myself forward for whenever the next olympics are um it, it's just something that for, for my personal sort of uh need and satisfaction so i think it's important to just do make it baby steps and as you go forward each time your each time you go forward your, your um, elastic has got a little slacker, so you, you can take that extra step. And I think that's, uh, and, and be kind to yourself. Recognise that you're not going to do it all in one go. Um, and, and be prepared to, to put, the, put the time in and, and wait for it to, to become uh, a new habit, which is what I've managed to do in this case. And huge value in that they talk about, you know, you know if you're going to eat an elephant, you don't eat that, try and swallow it. Oh, you cut it up into bite-sized chunks. And what you're talking about is one shifting the secondary gains. Why am I doing this? Or actually, I'm paying this money. I need to do this. And in the nicest possible way, we're not getting any younger. You're all right. Um, mm -hmm. So if we don't start doing this stuff now, what's that going to look like 20 years time? Actually, you know, it's looking at that stuff. Um, and then it's a creating that, as I was thinking about it, as you were saying, like that habit bandwidth. How much mm -hmm. bandwidth capacity do I have for this? physically mentally emotionally in time whatever okay how do i create a bit more how do i it might be 20 minutes of exercise but now i've got a bit more energy actually i wake up 10 minutes earlier so i can do an extra five minutes of it so on and so forth rather than um dissuading yourself from doing it because you're not doing 45 minutes of pilates every single morning because yeah. actually you don't have the capacity to do that you build up and then you work on that and get to the point that's huge great share mm -hmm. last question where can people find you uh, well, they can find out about Mission Ventures at, at missionventures.co.uk um, and they can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm known as Paddy Willis there, as I am in the rest of my life. Um, and uh, I'm also on Twitter, I'm at 
Paddy Willis, although I'm not terribly prolific on there, I'm more of an observer than a contributor. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and uh, happy to hear from people if, if there's anything that they um, feel I can contribute to. Amazing. Um, I cannot stress enough that is the importance of the work that's being done by Paddy on various different avenues of helping challenger brands, small, you know, these small companies that are up and coming, connecting them with bigger companies. So anyone that's listening to this that has got a food idea and they're incubating it, connect. If there are big brands that potentially are looking to, you know, to bring these people on and take them to the next level, connect with Pally. This is going to be massively supportive. And in the midst of this, he's also working to help support the initiatives and the reductions of childhood obesity, which is causing so many problems for so many people, whether they realise it or not. Um, and we know that obesity is causing a huge strain on the NHS, as it is anyway, let alone without COVID-19. So these two avenues of work that Paddy's doing, you know, from me, Paddy, you know, from everyone out there that you may be ripple, the ripple effect of the work that you're doing, you may not get to see. Thank you from them to you as well. Please keep doing what you're doing. Anyone that's listened to this has got value, reach out, connect with Paddy, talk to him, because he may be able to help you get that food idea out there, connect you with someone, connect you as a big company with them to, to make a change in someone's life. That's huge. Paddy, thank you very much from MBM. Thank you very much from the sticky interviews, and we'll see you on the next one. Appreciate it.